Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. As we continue in this study of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And we will pick up two verses that we included last week and then four that we are new to us today. We'll start in verse 3 and read through verse 8. It is well with my soul. What a great hymn that is. Is he worthy? Probably the most important question we ever ask. But the more important part is understanding the truth of that, that yes, he is. And we sing those things and and. I hope and pray that we sing those things with an understanding of the fact that He is who He said He is, and He will always be who He says He is, and He has always been who He said He is. Not who He said He was, who He said He is. That He's the eternal God, the eternal Creator God. He's the eternal Redeemer God. He is a God who loves us more than we can ever imagine being loved. He is a God who cares for us more than the person sitting next to you could ever care for you. And I don't care how much they love you and care for you. His worthiness is greater than all of that. And we bow in His presence to give Him thanks and praise and adoration and glory and blessings, and honor, and on and on I could go. When the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Romans, I'm sure a lot of people, even in that early church in Rome, must have thought, this is a hard letter. Some of this stuff that Paul says in here is tough. Matter of fact, I think maybe... Peter might have had Romans in mind when he said, some of the things our brother Paul says are hard to comprehend. They have to work through them. They're difficult. I'm not sure that when they came to chapter 8, especially verses 3 through 8 that we're going to look at this morning, they didn't scratch their heads and say, man, that's really tough. And I say that to say, I think they probably thought that 2,000 years ago. But when we hear what Paul says in verses 3 through 8, in our modern years, in 21st century years, I'm sure that we look at it and say, why, that's just, that's just inconceivable in the day in which we live. Because Paul is basically saying, here's the way it is. God has done a mighty work that he's talked about in chapters 1 through 7. God has done a mighty work of justification and redemption and, and bringing a people to himself. God has done, as one commentator said, the whole book of Romans is telling us that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Contrary to the American mantra, God helps those who help themselves. It's totally the opposite of that. God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has redeemed us. He's bought us. He's he's brought us out of darkness into light, out of death into life. I mean, you can go on and on with the glory of what it means to to be saved by Christ from Romans 1 through 7. And in verses 8, he comes, uh, in chapter 8, he comes along and he says, listen, you need to understand that in this world in which we live, we don't have a lot of multi-tiered people. We don't have two or three or four or five categories of people. Basically, there are two categories of people. 
And he deals with that here. He says there are those who are fleshly and there are those who are spiritual. There are those who set their minds on the things of this world and there are those who set their minds on spiritual things, things of another world, things that are higher. They are things that where Christ is seated, as Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and 2. He said, we live in a world where we tend to want to categorize and split up and, and, get, and grade on the curve when God says it's just a pass-fail class. There is no curve involved. There is no averaging of the grades. It's a pass-fail. It's a right or wrong. It's a lightness or dark. It, it's, it's, it's death or life. And there is nothing that kind of straddles the fence on those two. Listen to what Paul says, starting in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. We dealt with that last week. He didn't come in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh, because He was sinless. In the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, new verse. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For, the, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. It's, in a, it's unable to do it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I want to talk this morning about spiritual mentality, spiritual thinking, the idea of having a, a, a spiritual or a Christian mind, if you will, how we think and how we see things. About 20, oh, no longer, about 35 years ago, someone placed in my hand a little book. The title of that book was The Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Scrogel. It was written in the early 1800s, and it was, it's not a big book. You can pick it up like this. You can get it on Kindle for free if you want to read it free. But it's, it's a magnificent little book, just three chapters. But in that book, Scrogel argues that the, the, the essence of Christianity is not correct opinions. It's not even moral living. The essence of Christianity is not godly disciplines. I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and read the Bible. I read the Bible before I go to bed. I pray at this time. I pray at that time. It's not just godly disciplines, although godly disciplines are a good thing. The essence of Christianity is not some kind of rapturous experience whereby we just feel all giddy and all happy and, and everything's great when we're singing those songs. I mean, I got a little bit of a tingle myself singing, Is He Worthy? and singing it as well, my soul. But that's not the essence of Christianity. Scrogel says in his little book that the essence of authentic Christianity is the life of God in the soul of man. It's that internal working, it's, it's that in working of the Holy Spirit, living within us, dwelling within us, giving us strength, and, and if you will, giving us a new impulse to, uh, of holy vitality that's imparted by God Himself. In other words, it sets our minds thinking in a way 
that they do not naturally think. The natural mind thinks about the things of this world. The natural mind thinks about how they're going to get their next raise or, or how they're going to get a better house or a better car or how they're going to send their kids to school, the best school, the, the most prestigious school they can get them into. The, the mind of the flesh sets its mind on things that have no eternal significance and no eternal value at all. Many times the mind of the flesh sets its mind on how we can prosper and how we can grow in this world and how we can give our kids better than we've ever had and so they'll be happier in this life and we never, we always fail it seems to say, but this life is not all there is kids and we, and we do that to one another. We act as though what we get here and what we have here is all that really matters. We tell our kids, go to Sunday school. We tell our kids that sit for hours and hours and hours a week hearing secular humanism and hearing things that are totally contrary to the Word of God hour after hour after hour, and we think as long as we send them to Sunday school on Sunday morning they color a picture of Noah's Ark, they're going to be all right. Now, they don't do that at Grace Baptist Church in Sunday school. They learn doctrine, and they learn truth, and they learn the Scripture. But all in all, many times, we think that we can compensate for about 40 or 50 hours a week of ungodly teaching with an hour on Sunday morning, and that ought to do it for them. And in our homes, we live just like the non-Christian next door lives. We pursue the same things and we think about the same things and we worry about the same things that they do. But what marks a Christian is there is a love for God that rises in their heart that gives them a love for one another and ultimately a love for the world. It's a rising love for God that His Holy Spirit places within us. The life of God in the soul of man, as Strogel would say. It's God at work in you changing your mind as well as your actions. A lot of people will say, well, you know, when I, when I became a Christian or when I walked an aisle or when I did this, my life took a, took a change of direction. A lot of times we sometimes see it as sort of a 45-degree angle change or a 90-degree angle change, not a 180, which is what true conversion is. But we had a change. We quit doing this and we quit doing that. And we cleaned up our life and it got a little more, a little more moral. But basically all of that is out of somewhat selfish motivation. I look better. I sound better. People like me better. But even more basically than just the love that wells up, the mark of a Christian is not sinlessness, but it's aspiration. It's not sinlessness. Paul made that clear in Romans chapter 7 that we will still struggle in this life, in this flesh, just like when, when, when Horatio of Spafford wrote that song, It Is Well With My Soul. Oh, hasten the day when I'll stand sinless before you, O oh Lord. I can't do that right now. But in this life, that's what I want more than I want anything else. I want to walk in a way that honors you and glorifies you. I want to walk sinlessly. I may not accomplish that, but I want that with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my might. Yes, I'm weak. The spirit's willing, the, weak, the flesh is weak. But I want that more than anything else. And that's what Paul is talking about here with, with spiritual mindedness and fleshly mindedness. 
Verse 5 sort of peels away all, all the surface appearances. You know, we tend to talk about in our world, and it's been perpetrated by books and other things, I realize, but we tend to talk about people being in three classes or three categories. We tend to talk about, well, you've got the non-believer, that's obvious. That's the person who wants nothing of God, that's the atheist, that's the, the agnostic, that's the one who says, I don't want to worship God, I don't want to worship anybody, I, I, I don't want to worship anything, but really they do, they worship themselves, that's the fleshly mind, we know that's clear. And then we say we've got this middle category that's sort of the, they're Christians, but they're not really good Christians, you know, they've, they've made a decision, they've, they've joined a church, they've gone through baptismal water, and, and, and they're in the, in, the, in the cult, if you will. They're, they're in the, the realm of the church, but, but yet, you know, bless their heart, they just don't look a lot like it. They're really thinking more about things of this world than they are things of the Spirit. And then we got these other, this third class that are those really strong Christians. They're not weak Christians like those in the middle category. They're strong. They're, they're, they're vigorous. They share their faith. They go on mission trips. They, they, they give liberally to the, to the causes of Christ, not only within the church but other places. When the cause of Christ issues a call, they give to that cause. And, and, those, are, and those are people who have kind of reached a, you know, an elite status. You know, it's kind of like with your frequent flyer miles. You know, you're, you're just this basic level for so long. When you get so good and fly so much, you go to another status, an elite status, and, and there you are. You've, you've arrived. You get to get on the plane first. You get to maybe upgrade to first class. You get, I mean, you have really arrived. And these are Christians, we say, that have arrived. They've, they have a real walk with Christ. They, they really do Think about the things of the Lord in, in, almost every day, all the time. That, that's, that's, their, that's what captivates them. So you've lost people, you've got Christians who are, some would call them carnal Christians. Carnal is the word that is translated uh, flesh. It's from sarks. It's from the, uh, the Greek, They're just sarks, the fleshly thing. And it can have several meanings. It can talk as, just about this flesh that's on your body. And it can talk about the inner being that we're talking about here, the flesh thinking about the flesh, the world, what is all around us. But verse, verse 5 peels that away. Verse 5 says basically, hear this, hear it clearly. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. One commentator that I appreciate very much, Ray Ortland, said, said, you know, basically what, what Paul is saying here, there are two categories. There is sensate man, senses, going for the senses, and there is spiritual man or woman. Sensate and spiritual. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't live in the world. We do live in the world. You understand that? You got up this morning, you drove a car here. You, 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 you used an alarm clock probably to wake up. Uh, there are all sorts of things that we are in the world and we experience in the world and we will do things in the world. We have a job in the world. But the difference between sensate man and spiritual man is the sensate man not only lives in the world, the sensate man is of the world. And the spiritual man has his mind set on other things or her mind set on other things. The sensate man is the person whose whole orientation to life is centered on earthly things, offering earthly payoffs, and what they can get now and here. 
and how they can go about getting it. The spiritual man, on the other hand, is a person whose whole orientation to life is centered on spiritual things that are promising heavenly payoffs. Yes, we have things here. We will make a living here. We will, we will exist here. But, our, but we're really setting our mind on those things of God, those things that really matter for eternal significance. We're concerned about the, the souls of our kids more than we are whether they get a 4.0 or not. We're concerned about their eternal destiny and what they will have in the eternal life, uh, much more so than we are whether they'll make a, a six-figure or a seven-figure salary when they get out of college and get out there so they can take care of us when we get older. I think that's many times the real motivation. But it may be surprising to some of us to, to realize that the sensate man or woman can also be very religious. Skogel goes into that in his book very clearly. and He says, listen, the sensate, being sensate and being religious are very compatible because they're both earthly. Both earthly. They're both a religious person who is only religious is a person who is trying real hard to do with the law what Paul said in verses 3 and 4, the law could not do. The law being weak as it is because of the flesh, not the skin on your body, but the fleshly nature of man outside of Christ, the man and woman who are in Adam, as he said earlier in this book. Paul says, I want you to understand that, that if you are trying to attain sinlessness, if you're trying to attain right wrought with God, if you're trying to attain a good reputation by trying to do it through the law and through your own ability and through your own strength, then you are a religious, sensate person. I didn't say that. Paul did. He says, because your mind is more concerned about what you can get now than what you can do to say with Psalm 115.1, not to me, O Lord, not to me, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory forever. And I want whatever I have, whether it's my money, my house, my car, my kids, whatever I have, I want that, Lord, to be to your glory. And your glory alone. Above everything else. Above everything else. Paul, in Romans 6.11, which we looked at months ago, but he made that pretty clear. This is what he called it there. He said, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This idea of crossing from sensate to spiritual is crossing from lost to saved. And it's, Paul is saying what you must understand when he says you must consider this, you must realize this, you must know this in your own life, that, that you are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ. There's that whole concept of union with Christ that Paul loves so much in this book. Coming through again and again. 
Paul simply calls the Christian life being alive to God. And when we're alive to God, the life of God comes into the soul of man and our minds are changed to think on godly things. The psalmist talked about that, put it in their own way. If you were to look, don't look now. I've got it printed here so I don't have to look. But in Psalm 42, verse 2, the psalmist says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist says, here's my thirstiness. I get thirsty for water, and when I get thirsty for water, i got to have water. And And the psalmist here says, listen, my thirst, my spiritual thirst and hunger is for God. And I just want to know Him better. I want to. I want to. I, I thirst for the living God. When can I come and appear before Him in an eternal way that Spafford talked about in that hymn? Hasten the day when I see you face to face, and my faith shall be sight. Right now, our faith is our life in Him is faith. We trust. We believe. We look to Him. But that day will be sight. A week or so ago, I, I did the funeral for Art, Art Boone, and I, I made that statement. I said, you know, in the, in the funeral, I said, you know, his, his faith is no more. His faith is now sight. He sees him face to face. But the psalmist says, that is my desire. That is my aspiration. That is my, my want in this life. To know Him better. Or Psalm 63, 1. We we looked at this with the Lord's Supper last week. It said, God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He says, Lord, you are my God. And I earnestly seek you. That doesn't mean I go to church once a week. Sing a few songs, pray a few prayers, hear a sermon, and go back and seek other things until next Sunday. My soul earnestly. It's a passionate word. Or Psalm 73 that Pastor Ricky read earlier in verses 25 and 26, he says, the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? It's a legitimate question. Who do I have in heaven but you, Lord? There's nobody there but you. Now, we, we tend to, in our, our sensate minds, think, oh, mama's there and daddy's there and, 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 and they're waiting at the gate to meet me there and I can't wait to spend time talking with them when I get there. That's not what I long for for heaven. My mom and dad are there. But I have no one in heaven but God. I have no one in heaven but Christ that, can, that I need to pursue. He said, whom have, I have in, in, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Hmm. Nothing on earth that I desire besides you? That's not very 21st century Christianity, folks, even for pastors. present company included. He 
Yeah, I watch my 401B. And I think about when the stock market goes up, it's going to go up. And, and Retta tells me, who are you trusting? She does this. She really does this. Hope she doesn't listen to the sermon later. Uh, who are you trusting? What are you trusting? Lord, I have no one in heaven but you, and I desire no and nothing on earth. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. There's that word flesh, and there it's talking about this fleshly body, this actual physical body. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and He is my portion forever. Paul himself was like that. He discovered that Jesus is a treasure so rich and so precious and so beautiful that that he was willing to give up all his hard-earned, hard-won life achievement awards and junk them in order to have Jesus. That's what he says in Philippians chapter 3. He, he said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. In other words, he was saying, I was as religious as they get. I was wealthy because of my positions. I had the world by the tail, and I owned it. But when I came face to face with Jesus, I saw that There's nothing on earth I desire more than Him. Gave it all up for the sake of the glory of Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. Here's your test. You, You don't know if you're a believer or not. Where's your mindset? Do you think about God and think about Christ a couple hours a week? When somebody is standing before you, either leading a song that directs our attention toward God or in a Sunday school class where you talk about spiritual things or preachers up here telling you, you know, you got to think about Him. Or do you think about Him during the week? Is your mind set on things? Do you, do you evaluate things about how it will affect your testimony, how it will affect your influence in other people's lives for the glory of God and for the gospel? Or do you just say, hey, that's Sunday stuff, man. That's not for me during the week. Paul is saying here, quite frankly, don't tell yourself I became a Christian when I raised my hand at a meeting or walked an aisle in a church or went through the baptismal waters. Now that may be how you came to confess becoming a Christian to Christ. It may very well be. But it's not how you know you're a Christian. If, if I ask you today, how do you know you're a Christian? Are you going to say it's because I joined the church? It's going to say because 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 5 years ago or, or, or 100 years ago. I was convicted, raised my hand and went forward in an evangelistic meeting and got baptized and joined the church. That was 30 years ago, but that's how I know I'm a Christian. Then you've missed the point that Paul is making here. The Bible never points back to an event 
to give you assurance for your salvation. Never does. Read the, the epistle of 1 John. John gives there about six or seven marks of a believer, signs of spiritual life. And not one of them say, remember the day when you raised your hand. Not one of them. They all say, what is going on in your life today? What is God doing in your life today? Where is your mind set today? So while we may allow for three categories, the, the, the lost person, the Christian who's just kind of mucking along, and, and the, spirit, the, the spiritual Christians who really have it all together, we may try to allow for those three, but, but Paul doesn't. And he's not exhorting us here to, to become more spiritually minded, though that's not a bad idea. What he's doing here, he's primarily pointing out that Christians are spiritually minded. Not that we ought to try to be more. That, that's very moralistic. That can be very legalistic. That can be very, <clears throat> got to pull up my bootstraps and take care of it myself. And that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying we need more willpower or more, more attempts at doing what's good. He's simply saying this. We need a deep conviction and a deep persuasion that Jesus Christ is everything. He's everything. He is everything. And He's worth my allegiance. And He's worthy of my worship. And he's worthy of my thinking on him seven days a week, not just one day a week. And he's worthy of me thinking about how my life is affecting the lives of others. Because my life is not to be lived for my pleasure and my glory and what I want and what I like. My life is to be lived for the glory of Christ. My mind is set on those things. If my mind is set on Him, that will be the reality. So let me read again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the life of God in, the, in their souls set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God. Ooh, that's a strong statement. The mind that's always thinking about earthly things and never thinking about godly things. The, thing, the, the mind that's set on the flesh uh, is hostile to God, warring with God, hating God. And, and maybe saying, I'm religious and I'm trying to live by the law. But he says, listen, the, the mind that is hostile to God does not submit to God's law, even though they may externally try to do it. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law because it is unable to do that. They want to, but can't. 
It's the life of God by the Holy Spirit stirring up impulses of of glorious things and glorious thinking toward Him. That's the essence of Christianity. Don't find comfort in saying, well, I raised my hand or I walked an aisle. Find comfort in knowing that He is worthy today. Pray with me.